0: Hi everyone, I'm Monica Toriello, and you're listening to the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the consumer and retail industry. Today's episode is about the youngest consumer generations, namely Generation Z and Millennials, and how they're shaping the future of shopping. McKinsey has been doing and continues to do research on Gen Z globally. For example, our latest insights on Gen Z in Asia and Gen Z in Latin America are available on McKinsey.com. This podcast episode is focused on Gen Z and millennials in the United States. The conversation was recorded before the COVID-19 outbreak, but the insights are as relevant as ever. Lucia Riley from McKinsey Publishing speaks with Bo Finneman, a partner based in McKinsey's Miami office, and Emma Spagnolo, an associate partner in our New Jersey office.
1: Bo, Emma, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time today. Thank you so much for having me.
2: Yeah, it's great to be here. It's
1: great to have you. Um, Before we get started, let's define terms. Emma, tell us, who are Generation
3: Z? When were they born? How old are they? How is that different from the millennials who came before? Sure. So Gen Z is our latest generation. It's not super clear today where they end. It hasn't been defined. But they started out in 1996. So they basically go from 96 until now. And they're up to 22 years old. When you think about millennials, you're looking more at a 23 to a 37-year-old, so roughly 1981 to 1995.
1: Mm-hmm. And what's the importance of Gen Z as a demographic? How big a cohort do they represent? And what is at stake for the brands who are looking at them as they you know, emerge over the coming years as consumers?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question. And you know, I think from a Generation Z point of view, although as a population they won't necessarily peak for another 15 to 20 years, We're really looking at them as the core influencers today that have a really big impact on both millennials and Gen Xers in terms of what they buy. So in size, they will definitely reach scale in in the next 10 to 15 years, but it's about their influence today, and that's why it's so important.
3: And how do they have influence on Gen Xers? So I think it goes both ways, actually. On the one hand, you have Gen Z needing to influence their parents in order to get what they want. But on the other hand, if you look at actually the influence behaviors of Gen X, they are much more likely to be influenced by people in person sitting at the dinner table. So as they listen to their kids talk to them, they are actually being influenced on what they want to buy for themselves.
1: When we think about Gen Z, what are some of the characteristics that come up? How is this younger generation typically described
2: I think the way in which it's described is sometimes not always in the most positive of terms. So you may actually have some things come out from executives saying, are they entitled or are they a bit elitist in terms of their beliefs and their perspectives or their demands on brands? Um, But I think there's a real authenticity to the Gen Z generation in saying they want to breathe new life into what corporate responsibility looks like. And one of the biggest elements that's come out of the research in the last few years has been the focus on values. And I think that they're looking beyond tangible products and actually trying to understand what is it that makes the company tick? What's their mission? What's their purpose? And what are they actually trying to build for us as a society? And to me, it's that lifeblood of thought that's been quite compelling for them.
3: These are trends that started for sure with millennials over the last couple of years. And now what we see is as Gen Z are coming up, they're pushing it even further and they're accelerating a lot of these trends. And
1: so how is that emphasis on values and sustainability? How does that relate to um, value as a priority? Are Gen Z, in other words, willing to pay a premium for sustainable goods with a story that makes them feel guiltless about consumption and so forth?
2: There's a real shift in the generations in terms of how you even think about value delivery to a customer. And I think before it was pretty easy. You could almost think about it in consumer as, you know, what's the overall price look like and the quality of the item and what's the trade off that I'm making? And now I think that simplistic lens we've actually seen from folks really diminish. And when you look across generations, it's very significant in terms of the folks that say, I make a decision based on pure value or lower cost. And now that equation of how we even evaluate what something is worth is so much more multidimensional. And I think to your point, it goes to societal values, it goes to status, it goes to social influence, etc. And that dimension has become um, far more than what it was before.
3: How does Gen Z feel about luxury? So actually, it's interesting. Gen Z is definitely willing to spend on luxury, which is different than what I think you hear a lot of times out in the press. The difference is that Gen Z doesn't think of luxury as a name brand that they want to slap onto their bag or their shirt and wear it as a badge. They're really looking for unique items that set them apart. And this is a place where millennials and Gen Z actually diverge. Whereas a millennial is more looking for that kind of showcase or status of, look at me wearing this brand item, a Gen Z is looking more for this item that shows that they are different and they are unique. Um, And if they find it from a luxury brand, then they're absolutely willing to pay for it. I think part of it is just the world that we're living in today. They're growing up in times where things can be difficult, both from a geopolitical, a climate perspective. There's a lot of contradictory things that they're hearing out there. And so trust is kind of difficult for them. They don't want to fit in with a certain crowd or be labeled a certain way. They want to be themselves, and that's where they find their security.
2: The the piece I would add on that, too, is it, it feels to me like the convergence of generational mindset where you have Gen Zs saying, I like the aspect of being an individual. I like the aspect of having true thoughts of my own. Um, and, and we see that in the marketing where fo- where you know Gen Zs will say, I'm not interested in what the brand is saying about themselves. I'm interested in coming up with my own perceptions of that based on all these sorts of sources. And, and the other thing I would say ties with that is, The overall ecosystem in which Gen Zs are buying is fundamentally different and maybe three quick sources. One is niche brands um, are popping up more than ever. Second is the way in which you can buy them is becoming more and more available and distributed. And the third is the, the overall importance and scale of social media as a platform to showcase yourself has grown. And it's been really fascinating to see the convergence of those two creating a bit of this perfect storm for for these types of situations to come to life.
1: How do Gen Z look at the phone? How much are they using their phones? Are they using their
3: phone to shop more than previous generations? So I think there's two points to this answer, because first of all, yes, they're absolutely using their phone to shop more than prior generations. However, For them, they don't think of it as this external, new, exciting thing that they can use the way that a lot of millennials and some Gen X may think about it. Instead, for them, it's a tool that they've always had. So they don't think about shopping in this binary way of if I want to buy item X, I must go to the department store. If I want to buy item Y, I must go to the grocery store. They actually shop across all types of formats. So they're looking at pop-up boutiques. They're shopping on Instagram. Then they're going into the department store. Then they're going into the specialty store. Then they're going online on their laptop. They're not thinking about, this is the place I need to go. They are experiencing these brands every step of the way at every moment. And their phone is just one super important tool for them to do that.
2: I mean, I remember even five years ago when we would work with chief marketing officers, the concept was your overall annual plan and your major campaigns and what you were going to release across a multitude of media channels. And now it's such a more complicated, dynamic world. I think to be a chief marketing officer, you suddenly wake up and have the realization you need to be a part of a conversation and you are part of social fabric. You're no longer the core orchestrator of the dialogue. You're purely one other voice in it. And that's a more complicated world to be in. It certainly has a massive amount of change in terms of both how you approach it on a day-to-day basis, the capabilities you have to have. But the most successful brands I think we see today have used that to their advantage versus feeling as though it's a um, it's a risk or something that they have to um, you know try to minimize.
3: It's like building a community. I think you can see it even in the rapid way that influencer marketing has shifted over the last few years. So even two, three years ago, Brands are talking about how they need to now have their Instagram and their YouTube influencers. This is where my customer is. This is how I need to reach them. It has now taken on the life of the celebrity where these are players who are less trusted by the Gen Z population. So now instead of needing to have one major influencer that you could shift your marketing money from a magazine to this influencer, now you have to cultivate this community of micro-influencers who each talk to 30,000 people, no more, and are – creating a collaborative dis- discussion or dialogue, to Bo's point, around your brand and what it stands for. And you need to guide that. And are those
1: formal brand influencers or those informal evangelists,
3: fans and so forth, brand loyalists? I think it can go both ways. Mm-hmm. It often starts as the latter, and then you end up striking up a relationship with that person. The brand often reaches out to that person and says, hey, it looks like you mm-hmm. love my brand. hmm they go from there.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think this is an interesting shift when you just think about it in, in terms of pictures in your mind. For a boomer, the concept was television as a family and seeing what advertisements would come out. And there was a degree of, of excitement around that. And, and you really felt as though you were learning something about innovation and what was being offered you know, you go then to to Gen Xers who suddenly start to realize word of mouth, and there's a combination of what I hear on television, but also what my friends and family tell me at the dinner table. Then you go to millennials who for the first time have social media platforms where you actually now have access to what your friends and family are saying, even if they're not at the dining table every night. And now you have Gen Zs who are saying, I can take the concept of social media But I can now filter so I can listen to my friends and family when I feel like they're credible on the topic. But I also have means by which I can access influencers and experts that have points of views in the space that might align with mine. And it's been that snapshot over time that's created such a a different change in how you as a brand have to think about communicating and actually working with customers so that they understand who and what you are.
1: So it sounds like brands' access to consumers gets Refracted through a kind of prism, and does that shift emphasis to brand story, for example, and the way that brands can create a coherent narrative about themselves versus, you know, specific advertising campaigns, etc.? I
2: think I think that's absolutely right, and in the context of today's marketing world, where it's easy to get lost in data and analytics at your fingertips, I don't think we can forget the core essence of how marketing was initially built up. And and it's the concept of emotional connection, which we know is differentiating and sustainable over time, along with the ability to communicate that um, in a manner that resonates with customers, that feels authentic. And I think the need for that in our world today, just when you look at some of the facts in terms of the amount of media at our fingertips and in front of our eyes, whether it's the number of emails, the number of social media stories that you see. To break through the clutter requires emotional connection and quality storytelling for sure.
3: It's really the only way that you can maintain your brand's positioning and your brand's perspective, because if you have anything that's not authentic within your brand story, it's going to be exposed immediately. Just the way that people are rapidly consuming this information, they're finding things. And we talk about cancel culture. The second that something doesn't match with what you are saying, you are going to be skewered for it. So it's really important as we move beyond being omnichannel and more to this concept of being omnipresent that brands are really keeping within their story and making sure that they are true to it and are authentic. You can't talk about sustainability if you are not doing sustainable practices. It's things that in the past you could kind of hide by selecting and choosing what you want to show to the public. Today, everything is fair game.
2: To build on the point, but there isn't an authentic spirit to the the Gen Z individuals, where I think they just really want to know and understand who they're buying from, and I think they treat, I always describe them as, you know, they're tremendously discerning and disciplined. Um, Some of us in other generations would spend money and not necessarily ask ourselves the question, do I want my $20 purchase to go towards this company? And I think many of us, I'm, I'm not a Gen Z, but could actually learn from, you know, that degree of value to say, if I'm going to spend money, regardless big or small, I want to make sure that it's going to be going towards something I believe in. And in addition, if I'm going to be presenting it as attached to myself, I want to feel even more pride that it's something that I am connected to. I do think that's why we see the degree of willingness to pay mm-hmm. that we see among these individuals. I just think there's a, when there's a greater degree of thinking and discipline behind purchases, it seems to also open the aperture to say, I'll pick up my wallet and spend it because I'm spending it on something I believe in. And I don't want to make light of prior generations, but in speaking for you know millennials, boomers, or Gen Xers, I think there was a degree of we make purchases which are more routine and habitual, and I'm not necessarily analyzing them deeply, um, versus Gen Z's got a unique twist on how they really think about what they spend on. If you're a, an established luxury brand, what does this mean for you? Mm-hmm. I think we've consistently seen across this research and our consumer decision journey research that loyalty is elusive. And it's almost by the wayside. We see it in our segmentation. The concept of I buy the same brand because I bought it last time and I'm sort of happy just doesn't work. That inertia is not as strong. And there's something about winning every purchase. And there are different reasons why you're going to win it. But I think there's a, a need to get under the concept of winning every purchase and finding a degree of innovation or newness or something by which you can compel someone to buy you again. That every brand is facing and it's almost regardless of how strong you've been in the past. In other words, resting on your laurels is I think certainly not an option in today's world.
1: So that emphasis on variety, I think in part what you're seeing is creates an opportunity for new brands as well. We see these new and smaller brands cropping up. That seems to be one way. I mean, obviously, new brands can crop up in part because it's not as capital-intensive to start a clothing company as it was when we were purely brick and mortar. But is that does that create an opportunity space for these smaller brands to enter the market and broaden the brand variety that consumers are looking for if they are
3: looking to stand out? Absolutely. I think if you look at the cosmetics market today— That's where we're seeing all of the growth. It's in these smaller brands that whether or not they're backed by an an influencer or an incubator or a celebrity, they're finding this way to get online because, as you said, it's not capital-intensive. They don't need to find a way into a large distribution network. And now they offer something – that is new just by being of itself a new brand. So a consumer is going to continue to buy all of these different items simply because they want to try and test and see and feel, and it's exciting and innovative to them.
1: Is Gen Z expressing a preference then for smaller versus larger brands? Are you seeing growth in that space?
2: Yeah, I think you know one of the elements we thought is, is it just the degree of newness or excitement around new? And we actually looked at the data and what we found is they are Small brands are by far outpacing in terms of their share of growth across consumer categories. So when you name it, when we compare small versus large, it's a substantial differential in terms of small brands really being able to grow way above their share.
1: So we talked a lot about sustainability and the value that Gen Z places on sustainability. How are you seeing that reflected in the research?
3: So it's super interesting, actually. I think we need to take a step back first and think a little bit about millennials, When we look at millennials over time, so when we started this effort in 2016 versus today in 2019, a large majority of their attitudes actually started to temper as they got older and achieved new milestones in life. The one that did not, that actually got significantly stronger, was sustainability. So this is the one area where millennials are even more convinced that they care about sustainability than they were in 2016. So this is not going to be kind of a fleeting, you know, the flavor of the year kind of trend, this is something that is simmering and growing and is going to continue to go on as, you know, one of the only values that they care even more about since 2016. Of course, when you look at Gen Z, they care about sustainability even more than millennials. But it's just, it's very interesting to see that millennials are caring even more so than they did in 2016. So that when you compare them to Gen Z, this is kind of a trend that will continue to move forward.
1: I'm wondering if if Gen Z is focused on wellness and how that might affect products like food and grocery and how is food shopping changing and how does wellness affect that.
2: And I think even within this one there are two parts to it. I think there's both what are they buying and then there is where are they buying. In terms of what they're buying, it is it is something that again a lot of what we test for is is this a a buzz term, an excitement trend, or is there real dollars being put behind it by consumers in terms of demand? And I do think you're right. Um, The the explosion of of niche diets and the aspiration and desire to have real understanding of the supply chain of your food um, is continuing to grow. And you see that in niche diets, whether it's vegetarianism, veganism, keto, paleo, you name it. Um, those are becoming sizable enough that folks are really having to actually build offerings around them. Th- that I think will continue. The other shift that's potentially even more more strong is actually where um, younger generations are willing to buy their food. and This is where we're seeing a real shift out of traditional channels um, and a real explosion into some of the other areas. Online-only grocery, as an example, taking real share from traditional grocery, going into some of the specialty suppliers as well.
3: It's actually so significant that today, roughly 35% of Gen Z say that they are shopping somewhere that is not either a traditional grocery store, a mass store, a club store, um, or a grocery store, you know, compared to other generations.
1: Emma, you referred to Gen Z shifting toward brick and mortar on clothes shopping, whereas millennials went almost, you know, were going much more toward... Online
3: only. Is that correct? It's very true actually. Uh, you see Gen Z shopping across all formats. I think what it really gets back to is that millennials were kind of given online shopping as this new, fun, exciting, convenient tool um, for them, you know, during the course of their lifetime. They went to the department store with their parents and now they are the ones that are able to go online and shop. And for them, that's not only you know fun, but also convenient. And when you think about the life stage that they're in right now, buying homes, moving to the suburbs, having kids, this need for convenience matched with this excitement around this being a new tool for them has really made online shopping exclusively a big thing for them. Gen Z, on the other hand, they want to shop across both types of channels all the time. So they might go online at while they're at school, look at something there, then decide they want to go to the store for fun, enjoy the experience, they see something, they haven't made a purchase yet, they get home, and all of a sudden they see an Instagram ad for their new favorite beauty brand and they hit shop now and they purchase through Instagram but that shopping journey touched on brick and mortar it touched on you know e-commerce online on their laptop and it touched on mobile so it's all it's a holistic experience so do you think that's more about the seamless
1: integration of mobile into their lives or do you think it's addressing you know Is it like traditional retail therapy? Is it addressing their need for social interaction? What do you attribute the brick, what forces do you attribute the shift to brick and mortar
2: to? I think one is there is a new and more profound resurgence of the experience of retail and in-store. The number of clients that we talk with and the number of tactics that they're deploying to make brick and mortar experiences better has definitely gone up. Um, You know, I think there's a second piece too, which is just the overall frequency of shopping that we're seeing among younger generations. The concept is no longer once a week or once a month or once a quarter, I'm going to think about this purchase. They're almost always on purchasers. And you can actually imagine it that when they get triggered, whether it's through social media or through something else, they've also been primed to know that they can go make very small ticket purchases at any point in time, and that's become okay. So I think there's some frequency aspect to it, which is just sort of open the aperture for online and brick and mortar. Um, And then maybe the last one is just sort of the the, the degree of community and social nature that can happen in meeting spots. And I think we're starting to see this in communities.
1: Are you finding that they prefer curated, multi-brand outlets, or are they looking at
3: like small single brand shops more? So actually what we see in the data is that they're pretty agnostic towards that. Ah. They're shopping each of those as frequently as the other, um, and they're shopping all of them more frequently than other generations. So it's really about, you know, if, if I see something that I like from this brand and I go into this store, I'm interested in their curated assortment, and I'm also really interested in the experience that that brand is going to give me. But you can have a brand that is a you know, a a company that is creating product and selling under their brand name. And you can also have a brand that is a retailer that has created this curated experience for them. And so that brand is more of the experience and the types of products that I see versus kind of the name that's on the tag. You can have experience and I think brand in in both formats.
2: The other piece to add on just in terms of from a business standpoint, when you think about this dynamic is, you know, both lenses um, bring new challenges and difficulties. So if you are You know, A multi-brand retailer, it's all about making sure you're actually on trend with the assortment and that you're willing to switch it up enough to keep it new and that you're always going to be on the forefront. And, And I think there's an aspect of what are you adding to my shopping experience? Why should I buy from you? Is it expertise? Is there something unique in store? How are you using technology? On the other end of the spectrum, you see this more specialty plays where they're only displaying their own brand in store at which point you have to say, I really need to stay on top from a product innovation standpoint and what I'm building to keep reasons for people to come in. And interestingly, part of what we've also seen is the blurring of the lines between the two and really having to think about if someone has an opportunity or 30 or minutes or an hour of free time, how do we ensure that we're top of mind for them in terms of a place they want to come for both browsing and ideally purchasing?
1: We know that Gen Z is a diverse cohort. How do they break down in terms of archetypes. There must be some categories of consumer that we, we
3: look at them through. I think what's super interesting is we've run a segmentation on Gen Z in isolation from the rest of the population. And when you do that, they actually break down to the same seven segments that we see from the total population as well. So we like to think of these segments within three, what we call clusters, that are all driven by a, a single value. So on the first hand, we have our value customers who are really thinking about what are they getting for their money and are much more price sensitive. Secondly, we have our quality customers, and they're really looking for the top quality item that they can get um, and, and making sure that their purchases are going to fit exactly what they need and are willing to spend for that. And then finally one of the more interesting groups we have is the image cluster. And this these are three segments where it's very important to them how they are expressing themselves with their purchases. It doesn't mean that they need to fit in. Some of them want to fit in and look like they are, you know, showcasing kind of their life to the world, but some of them are actually looking to be unique. But it's all about self-expression and the image that they're putting forward when they make purchases.
2: And I th- just to add on that, I think this shift which we've seen, if you just look at generations across a across a map, and you look at Boomers as the folks that, you know, Boomers and Gen X, we would have said this is the bank of the economy. I mean, these are the people that are spending, day in and day out. Those are individuals where a significant portion of them are price shoppers, and we've seen this for a decade in research. The folks that are saying, "What's the value you deliver? I'm price sensitive. Let's go for it." Um, and in Millennials and in Gen Zs, we're seeing that cohort shrink. And this goes back to to me. It's becoming a more multi dimensional decision making process. It's no longer so simplistic to say that's two ninety nine and this is three twenty five, and hence I will I will buy that. So there's an aspect in here of just that simplistic lens of of pure price and value that seems to be diminishing. And the group that's growing uh, um, are those that are more image focused, and they have different different desires. Some who want to be more on the forefront of trend, and some who want to be more trend followers. But there's an aspect of that. Showcasing an ability to, to uh, demonstrate who you are, which is becoming a much bigger portion of how people make decisions than you would ever see.
1: How much is this about life stage? And how much do you think these trends will
3: have durability, you know, 10 years out, for example? I think when we look at the segmentation, that this is not necessarily about life stage. Mm-hmm. I think what we see is that you know even some boomers have shifted into the image category. While it's definitely true that the majority of them still remain in the other categories, the, the movement is into the image cluster. And I think the other thing that we saw is just the shift of millennials. When you looked at it, it, it is roughly 13% of, of people have shifted from being in the value cluster to being in the image cluster. So this is not the newest generation that is actually making this most significant jump so i think it's it's definitely something that is here to stay
2: so j- just to just to emphasize that when part of why we're so focused on longitudinal research is to try to uncover this and so when we look over 3 years we don't see that the trend is receding we actually see that it's it's accelerating and so the shift out of those that are more price we call them economizers or risk avoiders and into image now the millennials are looking more like Gen Zs. And, and I actually think as we've started to discuss this, even uh, you know, among our own groups, it's hard to imagine that this change isn't here to stay. That the concepts of what is the value of the company? How do you contribute to social fabric? How do you think about sustainability? How, are you omnipresent? How are you bringing something new for me every time? It's almost hard to imagine that those are fleeting concepts that a couple of years from now will be completely new.
1: If there are a few things you'd like us to walk away with, what would they be?
2: You know, to me, there's there's one point, which is we need to deeply understand the seismic shifts that are happening in the consumer base and what's driving decision making because it's not marginal. I think second is really having the sobering moment to tell yourself, I have to win the purchase every time. The, the loyalist, the price plays – those are becoming less and less successful, and we have to really focus on how we engage consumers that have a new degree of demands. And I think really be honest and hold the mirror up and say, "Am I delivering, or am I not?" Um, and I think the third is really then saying tactically, "What am I willing to do differently if I'm a company?" And, and we see it from from the marketing that you do to say, "I actually have to figure out how to engage in a dialogue with consumers," all the way through purchasing and saying. I've got to figure out how to make my store more exciting or how to compete in a marketplace that's ever-changing.
3: You really can't, as a brand, think about how I'm going to capture Gen Z or how I'm going to capture millennials there are you know, a very diverse group of people within that, and actually there is a way to target Gen Z through boomers, if that's what you want to do, by looking at kind of their, their needs and their wants and what they want out of their shopping experience. So you have to get away from all of the noise and conflicting messages that you hear and really start to dig down into who your true consumer is and not just, how am I going to blanket target you know, the Gen Z consumer? Fantastic. Bo, Emma, what a great discussion.
1: Thanks so much for being with us here today.
3: Thanks for having
2: Thank us. Thank you.
1: We
0: hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast. A transcript of this conversation will be posted on McKinsey.com soon. To suggest ideas for future episodes, please email us at consumer underscore podcast at To stay connected with us, subscribe to our email updates on McKinsey.com. Thanks again for listening.